0: Hello once again, everyone, and welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast. I'm Brandon Hubner, and today you're listening to Episode 20, The Sea Peoples Sail South, Volume 2. Today we're going to take our closest look yet at the Sea Peoples and their most well-documented encounter with Egypt. It's going to involve some reading between the lines, as most history does, because the Egyptians left us more documentary evidence about these peoples than we find anywhere else. But the accuracy of the Egyptian view on things isn't always, well, accurate. One Egyptian inscription says of these foreigners and their origins that, "...the islands shook and vomited forth their nations all at once." As we have seen over the past few episodes now, it wasn't quite so instantaneous. It certainly escalated toward the end, and maybe that's what the Egyptians were referring to in that inscription, but the ultimate collapse of the Bronze Age powers and the appearance of the Sea Peoples at various locations around the Mediterranean was the conclusion of a process that had begun at least a century prior to 1177. We wrapped up last time in 1180 BCE. The Bronze Age world was literally in flames. The Mycenaean people had been devastated, most of their palaces destroyed and abandoned. Basically, it's now thought that portions of the Mycenaean populace were among the Sea Peoples, but we'll get to that a little bit later in this episode. The Hittites had been completely destroyed by 1180, And although they probably weren't among the sea peoples, the Luka were. And these were people located in southern central Anatolia, ones who had been called sea raiders and pirates since at least 1400 BCE. Ugarit and many other Levantine merchant cities had also been annihilated by this time. A few major cities there survived, and they would go on to become the backbone of the Phoenician trading empire but most of the cities around that region never recovered, which left the region relatively weak and open to migrants coming in. From this place of destruction and the rapid culmination of societal collapse, we now move forward to 1177 BCE. I should note at the outset here that the Sea People's invasion of Egypt, the entirety of the account was written by Egypt. It was written by a man who claimed to have won glorious victory over the Sea Peoples, Ramesses III. As such, we can't necessarily take everything he says at face value. Egyptian accounts of battles and other successes generally are thought to be elaborate propaganda at worst and self-aggrandizing exaggeration at best. You might expect, though, as we try to parse fact from fiction, We're left in a tough spot because this account is the only one we have concerning the invasion of the Sea Peoples. As usual, we will simply have to do the best we can. Let's start with the text of the inscription to see what Ramesses said took place. The text at Medinet Habu says, The foreign countries made a conspiracy in their islands. All at once the lands were removed and scattered in the fray. No land could stand before their arms, from Kati, Kod, Karkamesh, Arzawa, and Elasia on, being cut off at one time. A camp was set up in one place in Amaru. They desolated its people, and its land was like that which has never come into being. They were coming forward toward Egypt, while the flame was prepared before them. Their confederation was the Peleset, Tejeker, Shekalesh, Danuna, and Weshesh, lands united. They laid their hands upon the lands as far as the circuit of the earth, their hearts confident and trusting. Now, a lot of this inscription does ring true, based on evidence that has been uncovered in other locations. First, the lands that Ramesses said were cut off were all actually destroyed in the decades around 1200 BCE. Kati is the Egyptian term for Hati, the Hittites, a once great civilization that had been laid low by 1180 and was completely gone. Code was also probably a region in southeastern Turkey, a place that also suffered destruction. Carchemish was part of the Hittite Empire at one point, but it lay a bit further east, so it also bordered northern Syria. As you might expect, it was also invaded, but it wasn't completely destroyed, just partially. Then we have Arzawa, a region that we've discussed, which is in southwestern Anatolia, and was the site of both Mycenaean raids and later destruction during the collapse. Finally, in the list, Alatia also saw invasion and destruction. Alatia was the island of Cyprus, which we talked about last time. Cyprus gives us the most problems in terms of knowing when exactly the destruction occurred and what caused it, but the occurrence of invasion and destruction is evident on the island and in the textual record. The bottom line, then, is that the geography listed by Ramesses III here isn't in too much dispute. The more difficult task comes with our examination of the groups who supposedly made up the confederation of invaders, the Sea Peoples. In the Medinet Habu inscription I read a minute ago, we see the five groups that I listed. Peleset, Tejeker, Shekelesh, Danuna, and Weshesh. There is another supplementary inscription that lists the Shardana as well, which is a name that we've heard a few times now. Six groups of people then, and I feel the need to reiterate something that I hope I've made clear enough by now. The term Sea Peoples wasn't really affixed to this group until it started getting used in the 19th century, and it began to stick within academic circles. Before then, the Egyptian terms like foreign countries or countries of the sea were generally used for the same group that we're going to call the Sea Peoples. I bring this up just to emphasize the fact that the Sea Peoples weren't a homogenous group. They were made up of different ethnic groups and peoples from various locations, all prodded to migration because of famine, drought, societal collapse, and so on. We've talked about that a bit now. So, what exactly does Ramesses tell us about his battle with this confederation of invaders? For starters, I should clarify the fact that Ramesses actually encountered the Sea Peoples on a few different occasions. In conjunction with the depiction of the naval battle that we're going to discuss, there is also a mention of a land battle, The relief connected to this land battle shows warriors of the Sea Peoples, but it also shows ox carts, women, and children. This particular depiction is a big reason why the Sea Peoples are now seen as being migrants and not simply as wandering warriors as they were presented at one point in the past. Beyond this land battle that's mentioned, the main depiction and account talks about a great naval battle where Ramesses defeated the Sea Peoples, although there may have been two naval encounters depending on how you interpret it exactly, but we'll talk about the main one now. I'm going to read you Ramesses' version of the conflict, but again keep in mind the Egyptian state propaganda angle to everything. Listen to how Ramesses describes himself, for instance. And then we'll try to look at some of the underlying meaning a little bit later. Following the paragraph from earlier about the countries the Sea Peoples destroyed on their way down south to Egypt, Ramesses then recounts the following. Now it happened through this god, the Lord of Gods, that I was prepared and armed to trap them like wild fowl. He furnished my strength and caused my plans to prosper. I went forth, directing these marvelous things. I equipped my frontier in Zahi, prepared before them. The chiefs, the captains of infantry, the nobles, I caused to equip the river mouths like a strong wall, with warships, galleys, and barges. They were manned completely from bow to stern, with valiant warriors bearing their arms, soldiers of all the choicest of Egypt, being like lions roaring upon the mountaintops. The charioteers were warriors, and all good officers, ready of hand. Their horses were quivering in their every limb, ready to crush the countries under their feet. I was the valiant Montu, stationed before them, that they might behold the hand-to-hand fighting of my arms. I, King Ramesses III, was made a far-striding hero, conscious of his might, valiant to lead his army in the day of battle. Those who reach my frontier, their seed is not. Their heart and soul are finished forever and ever. Those who came forward together on the sea, the full flame was in front of them at the river mouths, while a stockade of lances surrounded them on the shore. They were dragged in, and closed, and prostrated on the beach, killed, and made into heaps from tail to head. Their ships and their goods were as if fallen into the water, I have made the lands turn back from even mentioning Egypt, for when they pronounce my name in their land, then they are burned up. That then was the text that's generally identified as describing the naval battle. Apparently Egypt knew that the Sea Peoples were en route because they used ships to block the entrance to the Nile, using at least three types of ships, which they called warships galleys and barges, but that is an interpretation of hieroglyphics. From this description of the Egyptian preparation and organized naval power, it seems that any victory they won was gained thanks to that organization. The Sea Peoples were made up of various groups of migrants, and although they obviously had some advanced maritime technology, which we will get into later on as well, They were used to surprise raids against cities and peoples that didn't have the military power to effectively defend themselves. At one time, they received credit for destroying all of the Bronze Age city centers that fell around 1200, but we've now seen how the Sea Peoples only account for a fraction of the destruction. The Sea Peoples were displaced people in combination with the sea raiders of smaller locales. So when they came up against Egypt, an Egypt that was in decline from her glory days, granted, they found her a force still to be reckoned with. If you remember back to our Egypt-centric episodes, although we generally think of Egypt as a desert country, which it is, the Nile allowed Egypt to also become an adept sailing nation. Their shipbuilding and naval experience then help them fend off the waves of foreign invaders that tried to hit Egyptian shores during the late Bronze Age collapse. Egypt was organized and able to fend off the invasion, so let's now look at just how a naval battle was fought way back here at the close of the Bronze Age. The essence of most naval conflict before the Age of Sail was hand-to-hand combat. I like how Payne puts it, He says that, before the Age of Sail, ships served as little more than floating battlefields. And when it comes to the actual combat, that is true. Obviously, ships saw heavy use as transport in campaigns throughout history, but in the case at hand, we don't have any mention of transport, simply of conflict at sea. In conjunction with the relief images of the battle, we see that the Sea Peoples relied on spears as their weapon of choice, while the Egyptians used the bow and arrow, which gave Egypt the advantage of range. If Ramesses can be believed, then their use of the bow and arrow allowed Egypt to pick off the Sea Peoples before coming within range of the Sea Peoples' spears. The depiction at Medinet Habu also indicates that Egypt used a grapnel to grab a hold of the Sea Peoples' ships once the danger had been stemmed. From there, the Egyptians then maneuvered their ships perpendicular to the Sea Peoples' ships, paddled backwards, and therefore capsized the ships of the Sea Peoples. This is precisely what we see in the relief depiction of the battle, the Egyptian ships upright, while the ships of the Sea Peoples list at various angles. One ship is completely capsized, with its crew flailing about in the water, while the nearby Egyptian ship continues to pelt them with deadly arrows. The Egyptians used their ships as platforms to carry out battle, as they would have done on land. Their added use of the grapnel to destroy the floating platforms of the enemy is ingenious, and it's quite rare to see this used as a battle tactic so early in history. The ram hadn't quite yet been added to the galley to transform the ship itself into a weapon, so at this point in history you could even say that the grapnel used against the sea peoples was the first true nautical weapon. Maybe fire could be said to be the first true nautical weapon, but that's a somewhat needless debate, I think. It does seem that the Egyptians used fire in their naval battles as well, but There's no indication of how they employed the fury of flame against the Sea Peoples. Possibly fire arrows were used to light the ships of the enemy from a safe distance. But as history has shown, fire is rather indiscriminate. So one naval force using fire always ran the risk of that fire turning back against their own wooden vessels. So that is the main account of the battle from Ramesses' point of view let's now talk a little bit about the ships that are depicted in the inscriptions. We've already talked about the depiction a little, so before we keep going, please do yourself a favor and visit the website to take a look at this famous relief from the temple in Egypt. It'll really help you get a better idea of what I'm trying to describe here, especially when we get to the sail and rigging setups of the ships. As for the depiction of the battle... We're shown nine ships in total, four Egyptian ships, and five ships controlled by the Sea Peoples. We know the difference between these two because the Sea Peoples are shown wearing rather unique headdresses in comparison to the Egyptians. The whole topic of the headdresses that are worn by the different groups within the Sea Peoples is actually a main focus of scholars who try to trace the origins of these groups. It would be a really long rabbit trail for us, I think, so I'll try to keep it short. Maybe as well, if you're looking at the depiction right now, you can try to pick out the various styles of headdresses on the Sea Peoples in that relief. The Shardana are thought to be the ones with the helmets that have two small horns. They're also shown wearing these helmets back in their depiction at the Battle of Kadesh. The Peleset are in the ship in the top row, the second ship from the left. They are wearing the feathered headdress-style helmets, and no, not a Native American-style headdress. It's a bit hard to describe, really, so take a look to see just what I mean by that. The Peleset warriors also seem to be wearing a very stylized cuirass, the torso, and chest armor piece. It's been described as a lobster style, which is pretty interesting, and it kind of looks like that. The only other group that's easy to identify is the tejeker There is a Tejeker warrior wearing a short, rounded type of helmet, bent over the side of his ship, which is right under the hieroglyphics in the center of the main Medinet Habu relief. The other groups are identifiable in other depictions from around Egypt, but that would take us way too far down the rabbit hole. Back to the ships at hand. Now, As for the hull shape, the Egyptian ships have a much more graceful curve from bottom to end. The ships of the Sea Peoples have a curved hull, but each end of the ship has a nearly vertical extension, capped by a figurehead that looks very much like a bird the sea people's ships are very similar to the depiction from a kynos that we talked about in episode 15 and it is intriguing to note the parallel between the feathered headdress of the pelisset and the feathery looking headdress of the warriors on the kynos ship which would indicate possibly an aegean origin it's hard to draw any conclusions from that but they do seem to resemble one another Another major difference between the ships of the two sides is that the Egyptian ships are shown with oars, and the Sea People's ships do not have any visible oars. The main thought about this difference is that the purposeful depiction of the Sea People's ships without rowers and oars was meant to indicate that the Egyptians had pulled off a surprise attack against their enemies, who had been lured into the river mouth, and put away the oars and brilled up their sails. This interpretation is buttressed by another part of the inscription, where Ramesses says, Now then, the northern countries which were in their islands were quivering in their bodies. They penetrated the channels of the river mouths, their nostrils have ceased to function, so their desire to breathe the breath. They are capsized and overwhelmed where they are. Their weapons are scattered upon the sea His arrow pierces whom of them he may have wished, and the fugitive is become one fallen into the water. I think it's logical to assume that the relief at Medinet Habu and the accompanying inscriptions were meant to describe the same event, but whether it actually happened that way or not is impossible to say. This, as we know, was the pharaoh's version of the story. Getting back to the depiction, one of the most important pieces of information we can pull out concerns the sails that were used on the ships of both sides of this conflict. The sails are merely a physical aspect of the ships and are apolitical in nature, thankfully. I'm not really sure how Ramesses would even try to spin propaganda based on the sails of the ships that he was showing so I think we can put a little more confidence in the view that these were the actual sail types that were being used at the time, both by the Egyptian warships and by the ships that the Sea Peoples had either built or gotten their hands on. The sails in this depiction are so significant to the development of sailing technology because this is one of the first clear indications that the brailed rig and loose-footed sail had been adopted on a widespread basis. I'll try to explain the significance here in a moment, but let's start by noting that up until this point in history, sails were definitely in use, but almost every depiction before 1177 shows a square sail. The square sail was better than no sail, I'll concede that, its obvious benefit lies in the ability that it gives to harness the force of the wind. That almost goes without saying, I think. A square sail as it was used before 1177, and even after that in many places around the world, was generally spread between two spars on the mast, an upper and lower yard, to which the square sail was held fast. This setup got the job done as a starting point for sails, But because the bottom edge of the sail in this setup was rigidly boom-footed, it wasn't loose, the sail couldn't be trimmed very well in order to catch the maximum amount of wind and thereby fill the sail completely. That was one of the major steps forward that came as a result of this loose-footed sail and its introduction during the Late Bronze Age Collapse it took the already sleek and low-lying galley hull and gave it the ability to take a more full advantage of the wind. The loose-footed sail resulted in better maneuverability, as well as the ability to sail much closer to the wind. This was when the sails were raised, though, so the conjoined introduction of a brailed rig allowed the sails to be hoisted much more quickly and controlled much more easily. In essence, instead of having the sail rigidly fastened to the upper and lower yards, the sail had lines, ropes, attached to the bottom of a sail, and the lines were then run vertically up the sail through rings that had been sewn into the front of it. Then at the top of the sail, where it met the upper yard, the ropes were run over the top of the yard and back down toward the stern, where they could be hauled to easily raise and lower the sail as easy as pulling a rope. In his amazing paper about this innovation in sailing technology, Jeff Emanuel likens the brailled rig system to raising and lowering Venetian blinds. As I said then, the combination of this brailled rig and the loose-footed sail with the already existing galley resulted in a ship that was, well, in gaming terms, leveled up. The long, narrow profile of the galley hull was engineered for speed, so this innovation took that speed and gave it better maneuverability and a way to get under sail more quickly. For the Sea Peoples, and perhaps even the Mycenaeans at one point, this setup gave them an edge in their raids on coastal towns and cities. I think I made this comparison in a previous episode, but the Egyptian depiction. Confirms that the Sea Peoples and other seaborne raiders of the time had a speed and maneuverability advantage akin to that held by the Vikings of their future. Given that the Late Bronze Age collapse was a period where maritime raids and piratical style groups increased at the expense of the centralized powers with their trade routes, it's entirely likely that this new technology was developed by the raiders. Emmanuel points out that the merchants and pirates shared some common struggles in terms of their technological needs, namely, the struggle to place as many rowers as possible into as small a hull as practical. The square sail solved this problem when the wind was advantageous, but the boom footed square sail wasn't very versatile. Introduce the more versatile sail that we've just mentioned. And suddenly, the raiders have more speed, maneuverability, and both of these on a more consistent basis. So they can even sacrifice a few rowers to open up some space for that precious pirate booty before they make their getaway. This development of sail technology, as shown in the Medinet Habu relief, is extremely important to maritime history. But it's obvious that any advantage the Sea Peoples or their composite people groups enjoyed in that respect, wasn't very long-lived. The Egyptians in this depiction have the same type of sails on their ships, so the technology must have reached them as well by 1177. Now, it's kind of hard to say where exactly this improvement to the sail originated. There is a depiction found at Saqqara that appears to show the setup of a yard and braille rigging, even what appears to be a crow's nest on top of the mast. The depiction was found in Egypt, but it shows a ship of Syro-Canaanite origin, and it's thought to be about a century older than the Medinet habu depiction. Even with a conservative date of 1250 BCE or so, this depiction shows us that the brailled rig, loose-footed sail, was probably in use by merchants from the Levant before the Bronze Age collapse really accelerated. And it must have been known to the Egyptians as well, since it was depicted in Egypt. We have also seen that even prior to 1250, the Egyptians had been the subject of an attempted sea invasion, even if it was small in comparison to 1177. It's actually that first invasion, which was mentioned by Ramesses II back in 1280, that may have been a catalyst for the Egyptians to adopt the more advanced technology of the early sea peoples. If you remember earlier in our episodes, we talked about how Ramesses II took some of the Shardana captive. He used them in his bodyguard at Kadesh. But we also have evidence that he may have reverse-engineered the ships used by the Shardana in that unsuccessful invasion. The Hittites were still kicking back in 1280, and there's a letter written from Ramesses II to Hattushalash III where Ramesses says that he's sending a pair of ships up to the Hittites so that the Hittite king's shipwrights can draw a copy in order to build a similar ship. We've seen how the Hittites weren't really a seafaring empire, but how they made a go of invading Cyprus toward 1200 BCE because it had become a hotbed for sea raiders. Proto-Sea Peoples, maybe. Egypt's early successes in repelling the Sea Peoples, and this letter from Ramesses that he's sending ships up to the Hittites, lead us to a very intriguing thought. Is it possible that Egypt had captured a ship or two from the Sea Peoples, had studied it to discern the technological advantages borne by the ships of these raiders, and had then adopted that technology for itself and its allies? The Egyptian ships shown in the Medinet Habu Relief depicting the 1177 naval battle aren't Hellatic galleys purely, but neither are they the simple Egyptian ships of tradition. They appear to be a hybrid combination of the two. There's no hogging truss on the Egyptian ships either, so they must have developed a sturdier hull as well. When it's all said and done, this theory requires a bit of reading between the lines, and maybe we're reading something that's not really there. Still, the possible cross-cultural transference of this new sailing technology during the Late Bronze Age Collapse is a fascinating possibility. We've now spent a good chunk of time looking at the Sea People's invasion of Egypt during Ramesses III's reign, and at the ships and sail style involved. I'm really quite pleased that we had some ships to talk about this time. We are still a podcast about maritime history, and it did kind of feel like we'd gotten a bit much into the broader history during our recent spate of episodes. It is all relevant, though, and now we're to the point where I will attempt to wrap up the Bronze Age. I hate to a bit because, just as in discussions about the Middle Ages and the transition into or out of that time period, nothing at the end of the Late Bronze Age is quite as bright-lined as most histories tend to portray. Alright, complaint about the restrictions of narrative history, and the finite nature of any medium of conversation over. Now to wrap things up. I'll begin here by going backwards to clean up something that I mentioned about Ramesses III's portrayal of the 1177 invasion. In most discussion of the account at Medinet Habu, the Egyptian version of events is taken at face value. The evil sea peoples descended on Egypt in their fleet only to be repelled by the mighty, valiant, and far-striding hero, Ramesses. It's fairly undisputed that Egypt did indeed repel an invasion of the Sea Peoples, and that there was a naval battle at some point. The representations of maritime technology are also instructive, as we've seen. Beyond these two, though, things become a bit more opaque. Egyptian accounts are notoriously propagandized, Just look at the crap that's thrown around by the relatively young nation-states of today, and then think about how much an empire could refine its official image painting after over a millennium of practice. Maybe I'm just on a soapbox here, and if so, I apologize. What I'm trying to say is merely that Egypt was under just as much pressure as the other Bronze Age powers were at this late point in the Bronze Age. Ramesses repelled the Sea Peoples, sure, but I think that his account of those clashes was a highly idealized account. He needed to boost his image as a ruler. The world was falling apart, and his political footing in Egypt was pretty flimsy as well. I wouldn't be at all surprised if Ramesses inflated the danger posed by the Sea Peoples so that he could claim to be the ruler who restored order to Egypt amidst a world in chaos. The actual inscription at Medinet Habu bears many echoes to the earlier inscriptions about the earliest incursions of the Sea Peoples into Egypt, those left by Ramesses II and Merneptah. However, by 1177, the disorder of the Bronze Age had reached new heights. We saw how it appears that the Sea Peoples were also migrating into the Levant, down into Egypt the ox carts and families depicted in contemporary reliefs. At the same time, there is evidence that the famine and drought of the time were also affecting Egypt, and that some of the foreign populations of workers were showing signs of unrest. In sum, Ramesses III must have appeared as a ruler with little control over his land, especially in comparison to the rulers before him. The depiction of his glorious victory over the Sea Peoples seems to have been his bid to show that he really was in control, that the chaos of the outside world would be held at bay once it hit the borders of Egypt. A deeper examination of the political, ideological, even the religious elements motivating the Medinet Habu account can be found in a very insightful senior thesis by a one-time history student named Scott Peters. The thesis is titled, Decoding the Medinet Habu Inscriptions, the Ideological Subtext of Ramesses III's War Accounts, and I'll link to it on the show notes for today's episode. I love the things that you can find online when you know where to look, and I'm really glad to have found that thesis in my reading on today's topic. For an undergraduate thesis, it's exceptional, and I hope you'll skim it at least. The nutshell version of this whole bullet point, though, is simply that the Medinet Habu account is immensely important, but that we must keep it in proper perspective. The Sea Peoples were migrants teamed up with experienced Sea Raiders, displaced by forces outside both their control and the control of the Pharaoh of Egypt. The issues of control over the chaos and what exactly drove the Late Bronze Age Collapse were issues that we talked about a lot last time. I don't want to beat the dead horse by wandering into more complexity here, so why not jump right to a theory about the result of the Late Bronze Age Collapse. The world at that time was complex, we agree on that. Highly complex, even. When a complex system ultimately does collapse, it naturally fragments into smaller pieces. That's precisely what happened in this case with the reduction of trade and the survival of culture on a more piecemeal level. Some of those pieces, the ones who had escaped the collapse largely unscathed, were in prime position to become the powers of the early Iron Age. Before we get there, though, we need to return for the last time to the Sea Peoples, the last time that we'll meet them under that moniker. Over the gradual decline that was the Late Bronze Age Collapse, the various people groups that made up the Sea Peoples migrated. I would venture a general observation that much as some things tend to follow the path of least resistance, some of the Sea Peoples may have chosen their final destination because it was open for the taking. There was little resistance to their appearance on the scene. That's a gross oversimplification, obviously, but I think it can still serve our discussion to a point. The paramount example to back up this idea is that of the Philistines, a people that until recently were only present in the Hebrew Torah and Deuteronomistic history. Recent scholarship has increasingly equated the biblical Philistines with the Peleset people mentioned in the Egyptian records about the Sea Peoples. This is all outside the scope of our podcast, really, so suffice it to say that there is evidence in the written Egyptian record to the effect that Ramesses III, after defeating the Sea Peoples, resettled them in fortified towns in Canaan. It's around this period that we see the earliest evidence of the Philistines in that same region, a few decades after the region's destruction. Combine that with Ramesses III's claim to have resettled the Peleset in stronghold cities and taxed them, and it's quite possible that the Peleset were present in Egypt for a period after their defeat, and then eventually moved north into Canaan by Egypt. That would certainly be taking Ramesses' accounts at face value, but there seems to be corroborating evidence in the fact that the Peliset bore similarities to Mycenaean culture, perhaps also that of Cyprus, and the fact that the Philistine people later pop up in Canaan also bear these same traits. So the Philistines that emerged in Canaan were likely the remnants of one part of the Sea Peoples, that's fairly agreed upon nowadays, but as for the other groups, much less is known. A few other Egyptian documents mention the Shardana and Jeker in conjunction with the area of Canaan as well. But beyond that, we have no supplementary evidence. Because a large resettling appears to have occurred in much of the southern Levant in the decades following 1177, Many scholars have suggested that the various Sea Peoples groups participated in the resettling of the area, and we just haven't found the evidence to connect the dots yet. It's certainly possible, as we know that the ancient Israelites were also able to take advantage of the regional flux there and to settle the lands that weren't already occupied by the Philistines and other Canaanites, which thereby set the stage for the Iron Age battles that comprise large chunks of the Hebrew Old Testament. This resettling of the Southern Levant was a gradual process, just like the Bronze Age collapse was in the whole. The well-known theory of Israel Finkelstein is that the migration of the Sea Peoples occurred over a period of decades, and the evidence we've seen bears that out by and large. It wasn't until 1130 BCE or so that the Sea Peoples had well and truly settled in Canaan and the surrounding region. The gap in temporal proximity between the destruction of Mycenaean cities and the resettling of these peoples in Canaan that bore some elements of Mycenaean culture tells us that the Sea Peoples who ended up in the Levant by way of Cyprus and Anatolia probably weren't the one-time rulers of Mycenae. They weren't the upper class. They seem to have been the generation removed from Mycenae's fall, the humbler culture left in the wake of the palace destructions, people forced to find a new home in the world. This was likely the case with the other groups that made up the Sea Peoples, so the ultimate conclusion is one that we've skirted quite a bit now. The Sea Peoples weren't the main driving force of the late Bronze Age. In places, they were a heavily contributing factor, but the collapse as a whole was the result of a confluence of many factors. The Sea Peoples seem to have been both victims of these and opportunists, ready to and maybe even forced to seek a new home amidst the chaos. That's really where I come down on this period, as if you haven't figured that out by now. I'm not sure what more I can add, honestly. We've seen a lot of material by now. Material that I hope has been informative and maybe even some of it new to you. The chaos that engulfed the Bronze Age world seems to have, rather inexplicably, spared a specific area that will come into our story in a large way beginning in episode 21. For some reason, the region that we now know as Phoenicia modern-day Lebanon, emerged from the chaos largely unscathed, setting up the Phoenicians to become the early maritime power of the Iron Age. As Klein notes, maybe they only seem to have gotten off easily because their area has seen a relative lack of excavation work when compared to some of the other areas where there is evidence of destruction but that disparity can only be remedied with time. What we know for now is that Phoenicia did indeed emerge from the collapse to become a power, but that is all for later. In conclusion here, I'll share with you one final thought on the way the Bronze Age collapse ultimately shook out. Several times the phrase Ordo Ab keo entered my mind in contemplating the Sea Peoples, and how the Bronze Age to Iron Age transition progressed. The Bronze Age collapse really does seem like chaos when seen as a whole. Highly developed, centralized palace economies and trade networks are destroyed in a relatively short span, and mass migration ensues. Mighty civilizations are decimated, some to the point of annihilation, yet smaller pieces survive and adapt setting the stage for a new age. This last quote, taken from Klein's book again, but quoting historian James Mulhey, is a nutshell summary of it all. Mulhey saw the 12th century BC not as a world dominated by sea raiders, pirates, and freebooting mercenaries, but rather as a world of enterprising merchants and traders, exploiting new economic opportunities new markets, and new sources of raw materials. This idea is, for me, the hidden reality of the Dark Age that is generally placed between the Bronze Age collapse and the start of the Iron Age proper. The Greek Dark Age is more identifiable by the lack of any palace structure such as existed with the Mycenaeans, but apart from that, The term Dark Age for the entirety of the Near East is pretty misleading. Yes, the world wasn't as complex as the Bronze Age cultural relations that had been disintegrated in the collapse. But the two centuries or so immediately following 1150 BCE were a time of rebuilding, reorganization, and germination for the seeds that would later sprout into some of the cultures and civilizations that still undergird. Western civilization today. The Phoenicians, the Greeks, and even though they weren't really a maritime culture, the Israelites, they all emerged as a result of and because of the collapse. Klein calls the Dark Age the catalyst of a new age, and in our next season, that new age will be our new focus. That, I guess, is the end of season one, and of today's episode. Like I said, our next season will begin with the Phoenicians and look at the development of Iron Age maritime powers, down through to the Greeks and their myriad contributions to maritime history. We'll finally have battles and wars, warships proper, and everything that comes with those topics, so I am definitely looking forward to what our upcoming season has in store. I may do a review episode in between seasons to summarize everything in a more concise way. That might be a tall task, but if you think a summary episode is superfluous, then let me know and we'll just skip it and get onto to the new material a little more quickly. I do plan to do an episode or two in between to look at some early watercraft of places that didn't fit into the narrative well because we don't know much about them. Things like the logboats of northern Europe, Early America, and some of the other rafts and hide boats in use in Asia, down to Australia, all over the place, really. The thing there is that we've covered the original source history as far as it goes. So the discussion of these other boats and places is based on archaeology and theory, and not much else. Maybe one episode will suffice there, we'll just see how it goes. Last but not least today, thanks are in order to Ralph and John for their kind donations to the podcast. Thanks as well to Sky Raider for the thoughtful review on iTunes, our first review from the lovely country of Germany as well, I think. If you'd like to leave a review or would consider donating or becoming a member to support the growth and development of the podcast, all of that information is available on our website, com. Also there you'll find links to sources for today's episode images for all of our episodes and some other information that might be supplementary to the episodes and a little helpful. That does it for our material in this first season. We will be back before long to continue the journey forward in time and until then thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.